episode three of Cinefessions, the solo podcast devoted to the confessions of a cinephile. I'm your host, Brandon Chowan. Today we're going to continue our first ever movie marathon here on Cinefessions as I review the second film in the Resident Evil movie franchise, Resident Evil Apocalypse. Now, as I mentioned last week, I'd love to use this spot in the show to discuss some listener feedback, which is where you guys come in. Email me, mention me on Twitter, leave an iTunes review, or comment on my blog and give me something to talk about at the start of each show. That's right, I said leave an iTunes review, because Cinefessions is now available on iTunes. All you have to do is open up iTunes and search for Cinefessions, and you will find me. One question I want to throw out to you guys is that of censorship. Now, if you might recall, if you've been listening since the first episode, I showed the movie This Film Is Not Yet Rated in my film class. Now, that movie is all about the MPAA rating system. The movie brings out the fact that the MPAA hands out the NC-17 rating for sex four times more than they do for violence. You have to keep in mind that the movie came out in 2006, so those numbers may be a little bit skewed by this point, but I really highly doubt that they've changed very much. So, my question to you is, what what does this say about the system? Well, what it says to me is that these, you know, quote-unquote unanimous parents of the MPAA, along with those that are running it, they're trying to tell us that scenes of a sexual nature are worse or more detrimental to our children than scenes of violence. And to me, that, that couldn't be any more backwards. At the very least, the ratings board should put violence and sex on the same level. At its best, the ratings board would look at violence as the most delicate topic of whether or not a film gets a PG-13, R, or NC-17 rating. But that's just not how it is as it stands right now. The whole debate would matter much less if every filmmaker was playing on an equal playing field. But that just isn't the case. Independent filmmakers have to do more to earn R or PG-13 ratings than those making films for the big studios that happen to partner with the MPAA. But in reality, that wouldn't be even as big of an issue as it is right now if the ratings weren't tied to the commercial success of a film. The MPAA has shoehorned themselves in, and they are now what some people would consider an essential part of the movie-going experience. But I think if you take a step back and really look at what they're doing and who they are, you might not agree that they are an essential step, and there's something needs to be done about them. But the fact that most movie theaters won't even play NC-17 rated films makes getting that rating practically a kiss of death for some, especially for some independent filmmakers. And that's one and two of the reasons I have such a big problem with the rating system as it stands right now. And it's incredibly relevant right now because the Weinstein Company has just lost an appeal to get their anti-bullying film called Bully down to a PG-13 rating from the R that it received. Harvey Weinstein's argument is that The film is too important for kids not to be able to see it. The place this movie can do the most good is in the middle schools and the high schools, and now the large majority of these kids cannot even see this film in the United States without a parent or legal guardian escorting them to the theater. Now, I don't see a group of kids going to their parents and asking them to take them to an anti-bullying movie. I just don't see it happening. They might, on the other hand, get to see the film in the classroom if the movie was rated PG-13. With the R rating, the classroom environment is much less likely, which is a huge disservice to the American public, in my opinion. The potentially good news that came out of this story is that of Weinstein saying publicly that he is considering a split from the MPAA. I hope, more than anything, that Mr. Weinstein is not just talking and actually takes a much-needed stand against the obviously flawed and arguably corrupt system that is the Motion Picture Association of America. If any one person has the power to influence the movie industry, Weinstein is that man. Please, Mr. Weinstein, not that you'd be listening to me, but just play along for a minute. Please take a stand and stand up for what you believe is right. Don't back down because you might lose some money. You'll make it back, you always do. The Oscars last night will cement the fact that you will make all your money back. 
And if no one is willing to risk a little, there will never be any change. And that would be a shame because the MPAA desperately needs to be knocked down a few hundred pegs. I support Mr. Weinstein and desperately hope that he isn't just waxing poetical with the threats against the MPAA. Alright, with that rant out of the way, what I really want to know is your thoughts. I read and hear a lot of the anti-MPAA talk, and in my opinion, obviously, it's all justified, but maybe you fall on the other side of the debate? If so, let me know. What it comes down to is this, I guess. Would you rather your 14-year-old child watch James Bond shoot up 100 bad guys that magically don't bleed, or have them see a pair of breasts on the big screen? Now, I'm not a parent, so my opinion might be different from those that are, and if so, I want to hear about it. Alright, so let's move away from the MPAA, and let's continue on with our Resident Evil movie marathon. Next up is Resident Evil Apocalypse from 2006, written by Paul W.S. Anderson, just as the first one was. Uh, This one is directed by Alexander Witt. Now, a quick warning. It's nearly impossible to discuss the sequel of a film without giving spoilers for the movies that precede it, so be aware that there will be spoilers for the first Resident Evil film. Also, you can assume that there will be apocalypse spoilers on the next episode where I review Resident Evil Extinction. But on this episode, there will not be Resident Evil apocalypse spoilers. So if you want to, if you haven't seen these movies, watch them along with me before you listen to the podcast. Or if you don't care about the spoilers or have seen them in the past, you have nothing to worry about. So let's jump into the summary of Resident Evil Apocalypse. It picks up right where the first film ends, with Alice waking up to see what looks like a a war-torn raccoon city. She quickly realizes that zombies and other T-virus-related monsters have overtaken the city. Some way, somehow, and God only knows how, Alice comes in contact with the star agents Jill Valentine and Carlos Oliveira, and the new acquaintances join forces to try to take down the evil Umbrella Corporation before they nuke the quarantine city. So let's jump into the pros of the film, because with every movie I'm going to do pros, cons, and then my final thoughts. Number one, the most notable pro in the film has to be the excellent sound editing. The Blu-ray would rock with a surround sound setup. The whenever doors are opened and something's flying in at you, the sound is it encompasses you and it sounds great. It's rare that I commend sound editing. In fact, this is one of the only times I can think of it besides maybe Drive, which I cannot believe Drive did not win an Oscar for sound editing last night. That blows my mind, but uh, that side note excluded. I very rarely make a note on sound editing, but this one really struck me as something that is excellent with a surround sound, and it's a good way to showcase that new HDTV with your new 5.1 or 7.1, whatever you might have, surround sound setup. So I would highly recommend watching it in a situation like that if you have that available to you. My second pro, Wit is undoubtedly a wonderful action film director. All right, The fight sequences were well-planned and edited nicely. The big actioner set pieces that were filled with explosions and broken glass and all that were quite memorable, but we're going to touch on this again in the cons. Mila Jovovich really steps up as just a friggin' badass in this movie. In the first film, she was overshadowed by Rain, which was Michelle Rodriguez's character. Here, she takes over 100%, which is great because, you know, she's the one that we'll be coming back for in the rest of the series. So it's good that they finally set Mila Jovovich up as this badass character. My final pro I have listed, some of the scenes... Looked like they were taken directly from the video games, which is really fun to see. It would have been nice to see more depth to those scenes, rather than simply a group of men shooting zombies in the head. But what was there was a lot of fun to see. Some of the specifics I can think of were the alley scenes, where the zombies coming down the alley. I could just think of Resident Evil 2 and shooting zombies down that alley. I mean, it was taken directly from from the video game, and that was a lot of fun to see. So that's all I have listed for the pros. Pretty short that time. That's fine. The cons... Anderson and Witt seemed to forget that they were making a zombie movie about halfway through, and the severe lack of zombies was crazy to me by the end of it. They were only there because the first movie dictated they'd be there. 
This wasn't at all about the zombies, and it was almost entirely about the Umbrella Corporation, which isn't what I wanted. Now, mind you, maybe I'm just not remembering the video games very well because I haven't played them since I was extremely young. But, you know, it's fine if they wanted to take the story in that direction. But I think there's a way to do that and still make the zombies important. They chose not to do that here, and it's disappointing. It almost felt like I was watching um, a Mortal Kombat fight at one point, with the infamous finish him line being said and everything. It was quite funny. So Resident Evil isn't about beating up morphed humans to me. It's about shooting reanimated dead people in the head. And that's what the movie seemed to forget about halfway through. My second con, Jill Valentine's first entrance sets her up as this no-nonsense killing machine, but then the rest of the movie kind of craps on that by making Alice one-up Jill in almost every regard, which, thinking back, I'm sure it was done on purpose because, again, Alice is the one we follow. But as a fan of the video games and someone who played the video games a long time ago, Jill Valentine is supposed to be this badass, not this newly created Alice. And so it's just a little disappointing for me and for maybe the others who have played the games first to see that. My third con, yes, the action sequences kicked ass, but what they really felt like were a few cool big ideas thrown into one film, whether it fit in with the story or not. Some of the sequences felt forced and others just didn't make sense at all, like Alice coming out of nowhere to literally fly into a church on a motorcycle to help out people she doesn't even know. Why does this happen? And how does a seemingly normal motorcycle fly that high in the air to enter through a giant glass windowpane? It, it makes no sense at all. It looked nice, but that's about it. And then there's the sequence in the graveyard. Since when are these zombies coming up through their coffins and start attacking people? Since when does that happen? I That threw me off completely. I, I hated that part. Another con. Overall, the story is just much weaker than the first film. The characters continue to be shallow, which is okay. But I guess since, you know, we're now delving into the human aspect of the Umbrella Corporation, I want more meat to the characters. Otherwise, give me more zombies and I'll be okay with these shallow characters. But if you're going to tap into the human aspect of the Umbrella Corporation and Alice and the Stars team, then I need more human aspect. My final con listed for the film. The acting by Jill and the other Stars member, Carlos, is over the top, which works fine because it's reminiscent of the original video game. But then Alice and Major Kane are playing it straight, and the majority of them are playing it straight, to be frank. Now, this makes for an odd juxtaposition and for some quite awkward scenes. It's almost as if Jill and Carlos were plucked from a different film and dropped into Apocalypse by mistake. It's just weird, and it took me out of the film a little bit, which is why I bring it up in the cons. So my final thoughts on Resident Evil Apocalypse, that it misses the mark as a great zombie movie. It's filled with a ton of cool actioner moments, but those parts have a hard time meshing to create something that's worthwhile. Without the first film, Resident Evil Apocalypse is nothing. And just two films in, I feel like that may be a trend that's starting to develop. When it's all said and done, I'm willing to bet that it's better to look at these as a whole than any one individually. The way the first two have both set up for the next film almost makes me feel like I'm watching a TV series. Like, I feel like I'm watching Lost and each episode's a cliffhanger instead of watching a film series. Now, I'm interested to see where Alice goes from here, but I'm a bit underwhelmed with Apocalypse. I give Resident Evil Apocalypse two out of four rotting brains. All right, so next week we'll look at Resident Evil Extinction, the third film in the franchise, and then we will move on to the animated movie and then finish up with Resident Evil Afterlife. For now, though, let's jump on to Once Upon an Instant Cube. Now, last week on Once Upon an Instant Queue, I made a suggestion to check out the not-so-typical slasher film from Christopher Smith entitled Triangle. This week, sticking to the horror genre and with the water theme that accidentally connects both Triangle and this film, I want to recommend a movie that probably gets overlooked as a poor open-water knockoff, or, for the uninitiated, a poor Jaws knockoff even, which it's not at all, but nonetheless. Some may even argue that the film is better than open water, and that's the boat I happen to reside on. 
This week's Once Upon an Instant Q recommendation is The Reef, written and directed by Andrew Trockey. The Reef was released for the first time on DVD in the United States in July of last year, but it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in France of 2010. The Reef is about a group of friends who plan to spend the day out on their yacht, much like the group in Triangle. And also like Triangle, the yacht in The Reef eventually capsizes. Unlike the last movie, though, there's no mysterious boat to help rescue them, which, given the circumstances, might be a good thing. Because the friends are in the waters of the Great Barrier Reef, they also have to deal with the fact that the waters are heavily populated by great white sharks. And as time ticks by and the sun beats down, the group is forced to decide whether to stay on top of the overturned boat and wait for rescue, which may never come, or to try to swim to safety, risking it all in the shark-infested waters. Now, as I mentioned, for me, open water is not quite as good as the reef. I understand that the open water came out a lot earlier than the reef, but I feel like the reef takes open water's good ideas and expands upon them. The reef moves a lot faster than open water, but the danger seems just as real. The tension that the movie creates is excellent, and that alone makes it easy enough to recommend. So according to canistream.it, The Reef is currently only available on Netflix Instant Queue, and it has a brisk 88-minute runtime. So anyone that's interested, be sure to check out The Reef on Netflix Instant Queue. So as always, if you do happen to check out any of my Once Upon an Instant Queue recommendations, let me know about them, what you thought about them. Did you like them? Did you hate it? Whatever, just let me know. All right, and that will do that. Episode three is in the books. So next week, as I mentioned, I'll be reviewing Resident Evil Extinction, and we will be discussing any listener feedback I may receive over the next week, which I'm really hoping to hear something from you guys. Speaking of which, Cinefessions is now available on iTunes. That's right, it's available on iTunes, so I'd love to see an iTunes review pop up there before next week. Now, if you don't want to do that, contact me on Twitter at Simon1, that's P-S-Y-M-I-N-1, or email me at simon1 at yahoo.com. And of course, you can always leave a comment on my blog, which can be found at simon1.wordpress.com. I'm very easily reached, so don't be shy. Thanks a lot for listening. I'm Brandon Chowan, and I'll catch you next time. (laughs) 